It is a psalm for pilgrims. I'm interested in asking the kids here today, what's a pilgrim? Can I get a, a definition of a pilgrim from any of you today? No? Do they all wear funny hats? Somebody walking a path to a destination. Yes, uh, we often think of it as people who cross the Atlantic Ocean to found America. But, um, but it means anybody who takes a journey. And it often has a religious connotation to it. So a pilgrimage is often used as someone who makes a journey out of some sort of service for God or as an act of worship. And we call that journey a pilgrimage. Psalm 84, it appears, was sung by the ancient people of Judah on pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem. It offers us a glimpse into the intense feelings these people had toward God's temple. Feelings that I think it is safe to say would have been true of Jesus too. You may recognize some of the verses as well from our repertoire of music. Part of the challenge of reading texts like this is that they can become so familiar that it can be hard to imagine them as part of a context other than our own. But no institution so evoked a sense of worship and wonder as the temple. And I want to try to recapture some of that wonder today. I'll do that in large part by putting this psalm in dialogue with 1 Kings chapter 6, which narrates the construction of the temple. And then, to hear this psalm resonate within our own context, I'll finish with a word about Psalm 84 from our own Juliet, who holds this psalm very dearly in her heart. First, the temple that Solomon built was considered one of the greatest wonders of the world. It drew visitors from all over the ancient Near East. Um, we have a story in the Book of Kings about the Queen of Sheba. Um, part of what she was there to see was this magnificent structure. It is what Judah put on the map. It's what put Judah on the map, as it were. Psalm 84 opens, and I'm using the uh, NRSV here. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. When the psalm calls the Lord's dwelling place lovely, it means it quite literally. The finest cedar wood covered the walls throughout the temple. Images of cherubim, lions, and palm trees were placed everywhere. And it very much evoked the Garden of Eden. In the inner sanctuary, the whole room was covered in gold from floor to ceiling, including the altar. Two giant cherubim flanked either side of the Ark of the Covenant, the vessel that contained the tablets of the law given to Moses. Just as the cherubim guarded the Garden of Eden, so these two majestic cherubim guarded the entrance to the holiest place on earth. Interestingly, one of the rivers mentioned in Genesis 2 that is said to flow through Eden is the river Gihon, and that is the same river that flows through Jerusalem and was closely associated with the temple. It is generally considered to be the river of God referenced in the Psalms and prophetic literature. And this river is not connected to any of the other rivers mentioned in Genesis. It's only found in Jerusalem. And so a very natural conclusion would be is that the author of Genesis 2 is trying to draw a connection and say that the Garden of Eden 
is like the temple. It is a sacred space. All of that to say, the temple was designed to be a kind of paradise, a piece of heaven on earth. The longing an ancient pilgrim would feel for the temple is that for paradise itself. Second, let's not gloss over that the temple was the Lord's dwelling place. The Hebrew word here is interesting. It is based on the word for presence, the word that the Hebrew Bible always uses for the divine presence, the Shekinah. Added to it is a prefix that turns it into a noun of place. So the courts of the Lord in the temple surround the locus of God's presence on earth. Now, especially among Protestants, we can get a little philosophical about the importance of places and things, of matter, and designating a building as the site of God's presence might sound maybe even superstitious. But perhaps sounding a bit superstitious is a risk worth taking. Trying to rationalize it, to distance God from the bricks and bronze of the temple, would do a great injustice to the text of the Bible. It is true that eventually, when the temple is destroyed in war, the prophets would declare that God's presence to have departed from there. But its destruction was the consummate tragedy because that building, in that time and in that place, was sacred. It was a holy structure filled with holy things. Let us not lose sight of their thingness. Third, the pilgrim wandering through the desert to get to Jerusalem can rest assured in this, that even the sparrow and swallow can find a home at the Lord's temple. In verses 3 and 4, it continues, Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young. At your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Selah. These are small, delicate creatures, and they lay their young there, which are even more small and delicate. Thus, while the temple may attract the great like kings and queens, it is open to the small, and it indeed shelters them. When it says, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, I don't think the psalm is just referring to the people who run it. I think it's more comprehensive than that, so as to include those sparrows and to include those swallows. In other words, the pilgrim considers the birds to be blessed in that they have the privilege of dwelling in God's house, ever singing his praises. If only I could be a sparrow or swallow and get to dwell in God's presence at all times, the psalmist exclaims. Fourth, God gives strength to those who strive toward the goal of his presence there. We read in verses 5 through 7, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. We find here that the pilgrim cannot rely on his or her own strength, but on the strength of the Lord. The strength is characterized as having the highways to Zion in one's heart. We get a glimpse here that the sojourn is both internal and external. 
It is progress on the internal sojourn to God that strengthens the pilgrim to make the external journey. Now, we don't know a lot about the Valley of Baca, but we do know that it was a path through the desert. Thus, the pilgrimage is inherently fraught with hardship. There's no shortcut to Jerusalem. But all along the way, God provides springs and rains and pools to keep his people refreshed on their journey. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. In other words, they all make it. They are all accounted for on the other side in Zion, and God provides the pilgrim at each step of the way with what they need. Lastly, after a prayer of blessing for the king, the Lord's anointed, the psalm concludes with a beautiful word of praise for the Lord and his dwelling place. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than live in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield, and he bestows favor and honor. No good thing does the Lord withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, happy is everyone who trusts in you. All of which is to say, there's no better place on earth than God's house. Or rather, God's house is where heaven and earth meet. But I want to underline one part of that, which is that this is a place on earth. It is not far off in some other dimension, as we sometimes think about God. God's presence is local. It is personal and concrete. Now, I'm not sure if dwelling in the tents of wickedness sounds all that appealing at first glance, but I'm sure a little imagination can supply what might make those other tents tempting. Suffice it to say, anything along the way that could lead the pilgrim off the road to Jerusalem could be considered a tent of wickedness. This takes discernment. We read, just, we read just above about oases that God provides to get one through the desert, and those are not just okay, but even necessary to make it through the journey. But because of the surpassing glory that awaits the sojourner on Mount Zion, any lesser thing that comes to take priority over the presence of God is a tent of wickedness by comparison. Now, for the last two verses, the, the best commentary I can leave you with is what I learned to appreciate about this psalm from one of the pilgrims of our own congregation, Juliet. Hi. <laughs> and it addresses the pressing question literally every worshiper of the Lord has posed since the temple's destruction. Where do we go now? Although our worship is no longer directed toward a specific point on the map, we are still called to journey with God and go where he leads us. And in a conversation I had with Juliet, um, it's truly remarkable how she has gone with God um, through many different places. Uh, she said she felt that she was the consummate pilgrim in that a number of years ago, she had only ever lived in New York City, Manhattan, Queens. And through a series of issues um, with her career, uh, a current ministry, um, she found that she was coming up against a brick wall um, with her job. And so she felt that this was one of the first times that the Holy Spirit had clearly spoken for her to leave the city that was really all that she knew in terms of where she had lived 
and go someplace else. And that place, lucky for us, was Washington, D.C. Now, at this time, Juliet was single. Um, she did not have a partner to come with her. Um, it's not that she knew nobody in the D.C. area, so she wasn't completely without a safety net. But nonetheless, um, this is her decision, and it's her move alone. And she moves without securing a job um, in advance. She told me how much she thanked God that almost immediately after she arrived, he provided community for her. For the first time, she had space in her life to start writing. And over a few years, she ended up um, writing for a, a Christian magazine known as Sojourners. Another word for pilgrims. Now, I unfortunately have to compress a lot of Juliet's story here. Um, but her sojourn continued as she went into her 30s um, while, and had to figure out where God was leading her through her relationships. Um, as time dragged on, she realized, maybe I will never get married. And this path to finding a relationship um, that was life-giving to her and eventually led to marriage was yet another pilgrimage that the Spirit was leading her on. The pilgrimage continued into becoming a mother, and there were many challenges along the way, um, but God got her through it. And at some of the parts of the psalm towards the end here um, that I noticed Juliet had seized upon was the comfort from, from God that she um, drew from God as sun and shield. She knew that she could always that trust that God would lead her to her destination. So I, I asked her, so I, can, I get the shield part about God's protection and provision for you along the way. What about the sun? What does it mean for God to be a sun on your journey? And without missing a beat, she said, God was a light in a time of darkness for me. God lights up everything, and the sun also warms. And I could feel the warmth of God along this journey. The sun also grows things. In this time, God grew Juliet. Thus, even though Juliet wandered through territory unknown, both geographical and even more so relational, the Lord protected and grew her better than any shield or sun could. God scattered the darkness from before her path and lit it up and kept her in his glowing warmth. Now, I hope in this homily I've charted a helpful course between making the way of a pilgrim in Psalm 84 um, of course, between either making that too specific to the past and therefore of limited relevance, but on the other hand, making it too private and too individual in the here and now, um, you, you could easily see how someone could risk reading Psalm 84 like a Robert Frost poem, and we don't want to do that. Now, because the reality for the Christian is not so different from that pilgrims in ancient Judah, um, you know, we have... A, the presence of God concentrated in one spot, although it's not fixed like it was in the temple. That one spot is Jesus Christ. Um, God has de deigned to dwell with his people in a very particular location, in human flesh. And the Christian sojourn is still animated by the hope of arriving in the physical presence of Jesus Christ. 
the main difference, well, one of a few differences, I suppose, is that the temple was fixed, but Jesus Christ is mobile. Thus, we are not the only ones on the move on the pilgrimage. Jesus promised to come back to us in the body, and he will meet us along our way. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the worship and wonder you still inspire in us, and that no matter where we are or where we go, you manage to make your way to us. And God, we pray that you sustain us in our faith and hope on this sojourn as we await the full redemption of creation when your Son returns to us. I pray, God, that you will help everyone here make the next step on whatever journey you're leading them on this very week. Guide them with your light, with your warmth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.